Hello, and welcome to What is Innovation? The podcast that explores the reality of a word that is in danger of losing its meaning altogether. This podcast is produced by Outlast Consulting, LLC, a boutique consultancy that helps companies use innovation principles to solve their toughest business problems. I'm your host, Jared Simmons, and I'm so excited to have John Rossman. John Rossman is the author of the Amazon Way book series, a former Amazon leader and managing partner at Rossman Partners. Mr. Rossman is an expert leveraging the Amazon leadership principles to help others innovate, compete, and win in the digital era. One of the leading innovation speakers, John delivers practical techniques and strategies the audience can apply in their business. John was an executive at Amazon.com, where he played a key role in launching the Amazon Marketplace business as the director of merchant integration and went on to have responsibilities for the enterprise business at Amazon. John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Jared, great to be here. So everyone knows Amazon as it's a household name and, and you know, your, your reputation and experience speaks for itself. I'm just really excited to have you and learn a bit more about what innovation means to you as a word and then as a way of operating. So why don't we dive right in and uh, just tell me what is innovation? Yeah, I think a, a slight twist on that question is what does it mean to innovate, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there's three core components to innovation. One is the ability to envision the future, right? See something that's better. The second is the ability to test it. Like how do you demonstrate, prove it, get it just right? And then the third component is the ability to make business value out of it. And I think that in each one of those areas, there's lots of different techniques, lots of different approaches and methodologies to do it. But I honestly see companies missing one or multiple of those in pretty common fashion. And Mm. that's why I try to really boil it down and like, hey, three things you got to do. You got to envision the future. You got to be able to test it and implement it. And then you got to be able to create business value out of it. And you can go about it in multiple ways. But, you know, in innovation is an improvement and it can be a small thing. It can be a big thing. But it is a new way of either delighting a customer, driving an operational improvement, and it's the ability to test, implement it, and make business value out of it. Mm, well said. I love that structure around envisioning, testing, and then, and then creating the value because it does, it makes this uh, sort of nebulous word, this you know, ethereal word, innovation, it makes it tactical, tangible. And it also, I love frameworks that do double duty. So your framework, I think, lets people think about things in an organized way, but it also implies the process. And that is so important. Well, I mean, you kind of touched on like my whole mission. So I left Amazon a long time ago, but everything I do, like I go, this isn't about Amazon. It's about you. Mm -hmm. And what can you take from a company like Amazon to incorporate into your practices, into your culture, into your techniques in order to become a systematic innovator. And I think Amazon is the interesting company of the digital era because they have really developed their playbook for how they go about innovating, how they go about scaling. And those are two separate types of playbooks. And and that's another thing people get wrong is they think that they're kind of big to bigger playbook. What most of us are good at is the same playbook from the nothing to something playbook, right? Mm -hmm. Like, well, that's the innovation playbook. And that's where they need to, to pay a little closer attention to the differences there. But I think Amazon is the company that has figured this out. And because they 
have such a, a complex and multi-sided business model and operating organization, mm-hmm. they have they really tell that story of how do you focus on different sets of inputs in order to get the outputs of innovation and growth that we all want. That makes perfect sense. And I think that concept of systematic innovation is something that is probably the less sexy branch of the innovation tree, right? You know, I think people love to envision this lightning bolt moment. Exactly. The, the creative genius, right? <laughs> exactly. And there are different forms of genius and, and different types of innovation that are born of those different forms. Yeah, I always equate it to like an athlete, right? And everybody wants the gold medal moment, right? And they, they envision that lightning bolt. It's akin to like stepping up and getting the gold medal at the Olympics. But what you have to understand that that's the output, right? The inputs are about every day for years going to the gym, not knowing whether you're actually going to get that success or not, right? Mm. And it's the same way with innovation. You can have those championship moments, but you have to trust the process, right? You have to do the everyday work in order to get there. You don't know when you're going to get there, but you know, if you focus on a set of inputs, you will win in this game of improving and innovating. Mm, Yeah. You know, as you're talking about this and describing it, I'm a I'm a college football fan. I attended the University of Alabama. So I'm sure I just lost some listeners with that. Roll Tide. But the way you're describing the systemic innovation process is very much akin to the way Nick Saban describes his process. You know, and my favorite quote of his is, you don't practice until you can do it right. You practice until you can't do it wrong. And as I think about your C you know, envision, test, value, and, and, you know, go create the value. In that model, and in the way you're talking about systematic innovation, is a lot about, it's the process. You focus on the process, not the outcomes, and it's the mundane. It's the everyday, boring, repetitive habits, things that become habits, that become things you can't do wrong. And, you know, as Amazon has moved into different arenas, different, you know, markets and different sorts of things, I'm sure they are bringing those habits that they just can't do wrong anymore because they have done them right for so long. Well, and really that's the the nature of this book. So the Amazon way is on Amazon's leadership principles. Mm-hmm. And that is the manifestation of a lot of those habits that go into it and really the definition of their culture and, you know, call it their management system is articulated in those leadership principles. And that's why I think it's such an interesting story. This is the third edition. I did some updates, made a suggestion to Amazon actually in it. Mm. But I think that those those leadership principles, not in entirety, but especially in the questions that the leadership principles pose to you is a thoughtful conversation because it really is a combination of both technique of like the habits we do, but you have to wrap it in an environment, Mm -hmm. especially the executive team manages this process of guided wandering and exploring and inventing. Because if you don't understand that guided wandering is different than operational excellence and scaling, you're going to squash it no matter what techniques you take into it. If you don't create the playing field correctly, right? Put it in the right set of holding hands here, right? You're going to squash the very nature of it because by its very nature, 
It is about quote unquote failing, right? But the type of failure we're talking about is an experimentation-led failure, not a failure of execution. Bezos has this great quote. It was in one of his shareholder letters where he leads off with, Amazon is the most successful company at failing, was basically his headline. Mm. Then he goes on into, is he explains is that, you know, most big companies embrace the idea of invention and innovation, but they don't understand the necessary set of failed experiments necessary to get there, right? right? And so what he's saying is like, if you don't understand how experimenting is different than your normal management science, you won't win at this game of innovation. Mm. And so it takes both technique as well as culture and leadership in order to do it right. Oh, that's, that's gold. <laughs> if no one takes anything else away from this conversation, that right there will put you on in a position to compete in whatever you're doing. If you can just make that mindset shift and internalize failure as an, as an outcome of an experiment and not as a, uh, an outcome of who you are as a person, who you are as a company, your capabilities. When you tie failures to experiments, then they get less personal and they are closer to data than they are to judgments. Right. When I work with teams in, in this venue, we don't use the word failure because it's an, it's an overloaded term, right? It is. It means both testing failure as well as, you know, poor executions, mm -hmm. sloppy thinking, you know, and everything, right? And so because that word is confusing to everybody, just don't use it, right? Yeah. Don't, don't use this fail forward concept because people don't understand it or they twist it to mean something it's not. Yep. So I always say, like, we're going to use the word experimentation or testing. Yeah. We're very specific about what we are trying to get to, which is quick, fast learnings yep. so that we can progress on our next iteration here, right? Yep. So that, you know, all these little tricks are the things that I try to bring out in, in the book and in my keynote speaking and, and in the work I do with companies. Brilliant, brilliant. I, I, I love walking away from that word because the English language is full of words. And for some reason, when we go to do business, we narrow it down to about 75 words that we're allowed to use for things. And then, you know, that's, that's how you're intended. That's how you have to communicate. But walking away from that word really does open up a lot of headspace for people because words matter. Words have connotations that are much stronger than the, their denotative meaning. And so I, I love that you do that. Right. I want to ask you about something that you touched on just as you were talking about the principles, you called them uh, leadership principles. And you talked about executives and the ways they have to think about things. And I'm sure it's intuitive to you, but can you connect the dots for us in terms of how leadership and executive decisions relate to innovation? Yeah, I think that, you know, on one basis, the most important decision a CEO, a board, and an executive team makes is about resource allocation, right? Mm -hmm. We can invest you know, precious few, you know, fungible or repurposeful resources in, you know, X number of different places. And so being purposeful in how you think through where to put your resources is an essential part of what the executive agenda is about. Mm. If you can help that team do that better, you're in a position to help create an enormous amount of enterprise value. Mm -hmm. How that team thinks about short-term optimization versus long-term optimization, 
Do we stay focused just within kind of our customers and our use cases? Or are we willing to expand either our customers or how we serve customers? It's those types of prioritization that leadership principles can help with. Mm. On the other angle, one of the things you want to try to do is speed up an organization, right? Like you don't want to slow down an organization. You want to speed it up. Sure, sure. Especially when you're in the game of experimentation, of innovation, because what you're trying to optimize around is speed to learning, right? Mm -hmm. Make it as small, make it as tiny, make it as cheap, and make it as fast as possible to prove out your specific little hypothesis, your little test and everything, right? Well, if you have a management structure where people can kind of, it's unknown how we think about things, how we prioritize, how we work together, what we expect out of each other. Well, guess what happens? Everything kind of has to come to the center, right? So you, you have to bring decisions to the center, slows it down. It creates, you know, this centralized mentality, CYA mentality, all of that sort of stuff, right? Right. But if you can create common thinking, common frameworks for how we work together, how we make decisions, how we prioritize, are we thinking long-term, short-term, all of those things, then everybody in the organization can make decisions using the same set of priority, same framework that helps speed up an organization. And so these leadership principles serve multiple purposes, but I think in particular, it helps the executive team make better and consistent decisions and it helps other leaders in the organization have that same mindset to make the right decisions at their level, speeding up the organization. Mm. And so one of the appendixes I, I wrote in this edition of the Amazon Way was about building your own leadership principles and how to go through that process of thinking through, unpacking, testing, trialing leadership principles in an agile manner because the exercise of doing that is tremendously enlightening, right? Wow. It's not just having the leadership principles. It's the process you go through mm -hmm. to get those leadership principles. So I was at Amazon from early 2002 through late 2005. Oh, wow. Launched the marketplace business, ran enterprise services. <laughs> yeah. Amazon's leadership principles, they weren't written down. They weren't codified at that point, but we were hammering them out, right? Like we were talking about, well, how do we make this decision? How would, how would this approach work in other circumstances? And so we were hammering out our leadership principles. And it was a couple of years after I left that they codified the leadership principles. I see. And it's because they took their time and they truly practiced them. One of the sayings at Amazon is that our leadership principles are not a poster on the wall, right? They're not intended for show. They are meant to be actionable, used by everybody in everyday meetings. And when we hire people, when we review people, when we are in the moment of making decisions in our business. And I think that's really what you want from your leadership principles is, is not something that's glossy that makes you feel good. It's something that helps you operate better. Mm, that's well said. And that is what I think you it sounds like you will find in these 14 principles are things that are more rooted. That's in, right. Yeah. 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 As, as, and, but again, like it's not about Amazon. It's about how do you take both the first principles of thinking through how we operate together, as well as Amazon's examples, whether it's the little habits they insert into these principles sure. or the specific principle itself and make your team more competitive. Got it. Got it. Now I've picked up the book. I have a $5 million business that I want to turn into a $50 million business. And I'm going to do it, you know, I'm going to use the 14 principles from your book, the Amazon way. Now, 
one of the things I always, you know, when I approach a, a book, I'm always thinking about how do I go from here where the author is to here where I am on Tuesday at two o'clock in the afternoon. And so any advice on how to make the Amazon way your way? Yeah, absolutely. I'll talk about two specific things. So okay. we started off with like, what is innovation, right? And mm -hmm. the first thing I, I started with was it's the ability to envision the future, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the first step of innovating. So one of the techniques from Amazon that helps you envision the future is this technique that's called a future press release. So a future press release, if you have a concept, if you have a new idea, if you kind of see this fuzzy outline of what the future might be, write in a future press release. So it's, it's a it's a one pager or less. It's an announcement, not about the launch of a capability, but after you've had success. So maybe two or three years after you've been in market, right? Mm -hmm. You talk about in detail so you can touch it, so you can feel it, so you can taste it. Who's the customer and why did this new thing delight them? Like specifically, what delighted the customer, which is really the superpower of your product, your service. What's the differentiator, right? Right. The second thing you talk about is maybe it, it, it might be the, the market size or some metrics of success. Uh -huh. But then the third piece is what were the hard things we had to do in order to accomplish this success, right? So now you're, you're like, okay, I know where I want to get. What are some things I need to do along the way? What are the hardest problems we have to solve for. You don't talk about how you solve for them because you haven't done that work. You're just getting the outline of like, oh, here's the big things we have to work on. So if you use these techniques of writing a future press release, writing is a superpower. It helps the clarity of thinking and then the future discussion around that clarity of thinking so much better than the typical PowerPoint slide or something like that, right? So Amazon talks about having this culture of writing mm. because writing things out, full paragraphs, full sentences for a specific purpose, for a specific audience to consider a situation will help whether it's, I, I do this stuff for my own business. I'm an operator of one, right? right. Um, you can scale it to any size business and any size team, write out what your concept is so that somebody can read it. And without you talking to them, they can understand what you're proposing. You will think so much better about, oh, well, yeah, that idea, here's the problems with that idea is pivoted a little bit. And now I've got the idea. Well, that's the cheapest way in the world to be testing something, right? Just, mm. just by writing it out, you're testing out the concept. Right? <laughs> exactly. So, so that's one yep. of the examples. And then the mm. other thing I would just talk about is the way Amazon uses metrics. Mm. It really gives it both insights into how to operate better today, but really by understanding and exploring a consistent broad set of metrics, especially around the customer experience, that's the going to the everyday gym. That's the going to the gym habit yeah. that you explore your customer experience and pay attention to the details. What you'll start noticing is A, you understand your customer better and you're more curious about your customer. And B, you'll start seeing the little points of friction, right? Mm -hmm. And friction friction is the, the best and easiest way to innovate. Friction is essentially, how am I asking my customer to compensate for a process or a product and experience that hasn't been completed yet, right? And when you consistently set and explore a set of metrics about the customer experience, 
over time, these ideas and these insights will come to you. Mm. So those would be the two things, whether you're a $5 million business or a $50 billion business, everybody can do those techniques and you will become a, both a better innovator and a better operator. And, and you'll also be a better communicator. Mm. I love that. The future press release is a brilliant concept. And, and I love that the, the future press release and the metrics, both tools that you just kind of laid out, they are both about putting pen to paper. And I, I love that you touched on, you know, whether you're a company of one or 1 million, putting pen to paper is important. And that's something I missed when I started my business as a company of one. It was all up here. It was all in my head. And so, I, you know, I felt like I had it. But writing it down is as important for something you're going to do by yourself as a company of one, as it is for, you know, a company of millions or tens of thousands of, of employees because of what you just described, organizing your thoughts, becoming a better communicator, because you're going to have to tell someone something about your idea if you're going to sell it to them or get them to buy into it, whether they work for you or not. So wish I had had, the, we'd had this conversation five years ago. I really like that. And, and I think it's, an, it's, a, it's great that the book reinforces those things as principles and tactical things that you can go do. There are a lot of books on principles, but those two things are very tangible. And I really, I really uh, appreciate you sharing those with us today. Absolutely. As you were talking you know, about you know, guided wandering and other concepts, are there any concepts or ideas in this book that you would see as sort of industry or domain specific. So how universal is this book? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and uh, no, I think that, and not that these principles are the, are in, in entirety are the right set of principles for anybody else, but I think it's universal to ask yourself the question, well, what are our principles? How do we operate? What are our, our priorities? What are our mutual expectations of each other, right? Right. And if you can get those straight, you will be a better team. Secondly, I think the concept of how do we grow and innovate is, is universal, especially through the lens of how do we serve our customers better, right? Mm -hmm. You know, as Peter Drucker says, there's two things a company needs to be able to do. It needs to be able to market and it needs to be able to innovate, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to be able to ask yourself the questions of how are we going to compete differently in the future and then bring it back. Well, if we think that's the future, what do we need to do today in order to start building that future? Because things get expensive and risky when you have to do them in a hurry. Mm -hmm. If you can take your little ideas that's when you have the luxury of time to experiment small and test them out and figure out and then scale them. It's when you have to rush something that they become high risk, not very feasible and, and really, really expensive uh -huh. to do. And that's what you see most companies get. The predicament is they wait too long to start the growth agenda. Right. And, and that's, that's when you really get sideways because they fall in love with today's profits and this quarter's results instead of prioritizing long-term enterprise value. So I, I think that this discussion, you know, I'm sure somebody will be able to point out a business or an industry where it's <laughs> not feasible. I don't know what it is, but these are cross industry. I, I work across every industry. In fact, the one industry that I kind of shy away from a little bit is retail, because I think the, <laughs> the playbook 
is so well established there um, and everything. I think that it's easier, at least for me, to have an impact in other industries because they they haven't advanced down this right. industry consolidation, customer multi-channel, effortless experience, innovation uh, mindset quite as much. They, they've done it more than most other industries. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I'm wondering about people who connect innovation to technology. You know, I've been listening to you and you have not once talked about, you know, as you stood up the marketplace here, the technological hurdles we had to clear, you know, it was our best in class technology that gave us the advantage to to drive innovation. Yeah. Which is 70% of the conversation around innovation right now, I would say. Yeah. So can you talk to me a bit about, you know, I didn't hear that. Was that intentional? Is that something that shows up? Well, it was unintentional because I, I I don't think of technology equaling innovation. Innovation takes a lot of different disciplines and capabilities to come together right. Mm-hmm. I think first and foremost, it it requires a value proposition, right? It has to be demonstratedly better than whatever the current state is for it to win, right? Remember, the third element of innovation is it has to create business value. So you have to envision the future. You have to be able to test it, but it has to be able to create business value. The way that you test business value is through a value proposition, right? Mm-hmm. And and so the first thing this takes is like, do we think that this thing is a winner? Like, d- does it have a, a testable value proposition? And so that's the first thing you have to have. Then you have to have a business model that helps you take it to market. Then you have to have all the supporting capabilities of whether it's supply chain or a human resources strategy or the technology or legal risks that have to be figured out, whatever they are, those are all the the structural elements that it takes to do kind of anything, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it's not at the behest of technology. It's at the behest of serving a new customer in a new way. And then I figure out all the capabilities that it takes, including a technical capability. Now, I do think that technology is the lever that can help transform so many things into being demonstratedly better, right? So when, mm-hmm. we can, when we can take cost out, time out, when we can digitize something that's physical, well, that helps make a better value proposition, right? And so I do think that, that technology is oftentimes a key component of making this happen, but you, you don't do it by starting with like, well, here's the technology, what do I go do? You start with a customer in mind and how I'm gonna serve that customer. Mm. That's brilliant. And I, and, and I love the way you phrased it. And it echoes to me the training I got at PNG in the early 2000s under A.G. Laffley, you know, insta, you know, consumer's boss, better and cheaper consumer back development and all those things. And so it seems like that sort of mindset, that wave was kind of in the air in that era. Well, at Amazon, it's funny you mentioned that at Amazon, they, they talk about their approach, their mindset as working backwards, start with the mm-hmm. customer and work backwards. And so yep. everything that I'm describing is that of start with the market, start with the job to be done, start with the customer, start with the friction and then work backwards. But the first step back is not the technical solution, right? No. The first is better understanding the problem space and better ways of solving problems on behest of customers and then getting into some solution aspects. 
Mm. Well, we're talking about this. So I have a I have a newsletter also. It's called the Digital Leader Newsletter. If you go to Substack and search either John Rossman or the Digital Leader Newsletter, you'll find it. You can sign up for free. But but in that newsletter, it's a weekly newsletter for uh, innovators and strategists and problem solvers. I talk about three things consistently. I talk about customer centricity uh-huh. and why it's important to be customer centric because it all starts with the customer. The second thing I talk about is problem space analysis. What too many people want to rush to is they want to rush to solutions. Uh-huh. There is a power of staying in the in the problem space. It helps you explore the customer, their real mission, what they're trying to accomplish, and it will open up your eyes to different approaches to solving for the customer before you go into the solutioning aspect. And then the third thing we explore is just different innovation um, techniques and mindsets and stuff. Uh-huh. So I hope people sign up for the Digital Leader Newsletter. Oh, yeah, I can provide a firsthand uh, <laughs> endorsement on that. It's a wonderful newsletter full of fascinating articles. The problem space analysis, it it makes me think of some other sort of trainings that I've had in in various places. And one of the things that uh, was a mantra was kind of drilled into us was you don't fall in love with the solution. You fall in love with the problem, because as long as you're obsessed with the problem, you don't get locked into a how. And the more educated you become about the problem, the friction, you know, that the consumer is experiencing, the better your language becomes to communicate with that consumer, which makes your understanding of the problem better, which makes that whole cycle much more virtuous and gets you to a place where when you're an expert with the, about of the consumer, the customer, and the problem that you, they're trying to solve, the solutions almost become, I don't want to call it self-evident to minimize the, <laughs> to minimize the extreme challenges of developing a product or a service, but the technology almost kind of finds you, you know, because you get down to the critical essence of what the problem you're trying to solve. And you'll develop multiple options. Right. And that's the key. Yes. Which can be then tested um, better uh, and everything. So yeah, in the, the digital leader newsletter, I have a specific framework that I made up and it's called the what sucks framework. And <laughs> like asking the question like what sucks that is a customer-oriented question that keeps you in the problem space. And so I kind of have a framework that, that takes you there. And so one of the examples that I framed out in, in the newsletter is an everyday occurrence, which is when you're uh, grilling and you're using a, a, a gas grill and you have the 20-gallon gas canister that your grill runs on, right? Well, what sucks is when that runs out, right? Because A, you have no indication that it's about to run out. B, it runs out intermittently, right? So it's not a a consistent thing that happens, right? It happens one every month or every six months. It depends on the time of year. Um, And the third thing is it happens at the worst possible moments, right? Your burgers are halfway done and all of a sudden you see the temperature dropping on your grill, right? So that's a really bad customer experience. Mm. And so in the example, and you can find this in the newsletter, I explore like all the different aspects about that customer experience that really sucks through the eyes of the actors that are in those scenes, right? Mm -hmm. And just by reading the, the, the what sucks problem statement, you'll come up with five or six different potential solutions um, that, that then you go, oh, well, you know, how would we go about testing these, right? 
And so even as something as obvious as like, you know, running out of the gas grill, I go just by spending a little extra time, but having the discipline of writing out the problem space. Mm-hmm. So Dan Olson in the Lean Product Playbook does a really nice job of explaining the problem space and the power of the problem space. I'm just building on the work of others, you know, and everything. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think it's a real power, but everyone, especially the more seen you are, the more expert you are, you have yeah. expert tunnel vision yeah. and you think your superpower is to go to the solution, the recommendation as fast as possible. And I'm here to tell you a real expert pulls you back mm-hmm. and won't let you go to solutions and helps you see it with a bit more of, you know, what they talk about, you know, the beginner's mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Being more curious. It's such a great framework and such a great uh, way of explaining it. The the gas grill is just a perfect example. My mind is just pinging. We could talk for days. I think you and I about this. Uh, it's just a, it's just such a fertile topic. I wanted to check in with you to see if you had any advice for innovators. Uh, You've written an entire book about principles around... A couple, actually, but yes. Yeah. Yeah, yes. (laughs) Yes, a series of books uh, about um, on the topic. But if you had to crystallize, you know, one or two points of advice for, for innovators out there, what would that be? Well, and let's talk about innovators within a big company um, in particular, right? Because I think for a founder or starter, it's a different set of advice. But if you're a change agent, an innovator within an enterprise, Mm -hmm. the things I would talk about is that, A, you have to understand that it's a different management science for innovating versus what you typically use for running a business, right? Running a business is all about optimization, right? having operational excellence relative to it and and refinement of existing capabilities. Innovation is about guided wandering, right? And you aren't seeking optimization, you're seeking insights. And so it's a completely different playbook. So that's one is you got to build an awareness in your organization that, hey, if we're going to do this, it's a different playbook. It's a different set of optimizations that that we're looking for. I think the second thing that I would talk about is we all want the, and this has been something we've already talked about, like we all want the outputs of innovation. Mm -hmm. Talk about the inputs, right? Like, well, what do we need to do in order to get that? And if you start that conversation, people understand we're in control, that it is a process. I can be systematic about it. And I need a different set of inputs to get those outputs than the types of inputs I'm used to getting to uh, in, my, in my business. And the third thing um, I talk about is, I think it's really like, it's this, the story, the, the power of storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of this is about how you tell a convincing, compelling story, both internally and externally. And so a lot of these techniques not just help you get to better insights, understand the customer better. It helps you tell a better story. Yeah. And and the more, you know, I'm an engineer by background. I have completely grown into the appreciation and trying to build my own skill set in how to tell a story because your job is to create change. If you're an innovator, the first principle of what you're trying to get done is create change, right? I'm not about status quo or optimizing status quo. I'm about creating change. 
stories are the way to create change in an organization. Mm -hmm. So those would be maybe three pieces of advice that I would give an internal change agent at a bigger enterprise. And you got to figure out how you're going to do all three of those things. Wonderful. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Particularly listening to a fellow engineer talking about the power of storytelling is gratifying. So John, thank you so much for joining us, author of the Amazon Way book series, managing partner at Rossman Partners, and just a, a cool and interesting guy to talk to. I really appreciate you making the time, and I am uh, looking forward to, to listening to this myself. So thanks again. Jared, thanks for having me on. Uh, people can find me on LinkedIn. The book's The Amazon Way. It's on Amazon. It's paperback, Kindle, audio, and please sign up for the Digital Leader newsletter. So it's a cheap and free way to get a little weekly uh, power boost from me. So Fantastic. Thanks so much, John. Take care. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this week's show. You can drop us a line on Twitter at Outlast LLC, O-U-T-L-A-S-T-L-L-C, or follow us on LinkedIn where we're Outlast Consulting. Until next time, keep innovating, whatever that means.